All right, I want to start out with famous last words. Um, Some famous last words are poetic. Emily Dickinson, her last words were, the fog is rising. Some famous last words are historically interesting. Thomas Jefferson asked, these were his last words, is it the fourth? Because both Jefferson and John Adams died on the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Some famous last words are, Tragic comics, John Sedgwick at the Battle of the Wilderness, when he, when he was told not to show himself over the wall, said, nonsense, they couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. <laughs> Turns out they can. <laughs> Pablo Picasso's famous last words, he said, drink to me. Dylan Thomas kind of one-upped him. His famous last words were, quote, I have just had 18 whiskeys in a row. I do believe that is a record. <laughs> or if Finally, it was the author, Oscar Wilde, who said, either the wallpaper goes or I do. <laughs> On a more serious note, though, uh, we all know that the last words that someone speaks to us are vitally important. And these were the last words that Jesus spoke before he ascended into heaven. We read it a couple of weeks ago from Acts chapter 1. He said, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Um, Those are the last, the very last words that Jesus said while he was standing on uh, on this earth. And they begin to be fulfilled in our passage today in Acts chapter 2. So let's read it. At this point, In church history, there are only 120 Christians, and they're all in the city of Jerusalem. We read 2.1, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, like a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, which would be basically like present-day Iran, Residents of Mesopotamia, present-day Iraq, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, all present-day Turkey, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Cretans, that'd be a small island nation in the middle of the Mediterranean, and Arabs, which would be present-day Saudi Arabia. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray again. Spirit of God, you who are the wind and fire, come and breathe on us so that we might be given too much wine as well. Give us a knowledge of the truth and abundant love that we would love our neighbor and love you, our God, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and and power from on high to bear witness to the wonderful works that you have done in and through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And God's people said, amen. 
I'm just kind of curious, have any of you ever like, lived, through, lived through a tornado? Anybody made it through a tornado? You have. And what did it sound like? Yep, that's what everybody says. Is it, it sounds like a freight train when it's barreling down on you. Where were you, by the, t- by the way? You were in Michigan for it? Wow. Everyone who makes it through a tornado says it's like a train coming towards you. So what did Pentecost sound like? It says the Pentecost, Pentecost was this great rushing wind. That's what it sounded like. Um, what did Pentecost look like? Fire. Um, fire in the Old Testament is used to describe the presence of God. And Luke here makes a special point of noting that the, the fire was, it like started out as a, as a ball of flame, and then it comes and individually rests upon each of the 120 Christians there. So like these individual tongues or you know, balls of flame resting on the top of each person. What did Pentecost feel like? Power. In the Old Testament, whenever the Holy Spirit shows up, it's normally in order to empower certain important people with their tasks, prophets, priests, and kings. But here, when the Spirit comes upon each of the 120 Christians, you see it's, it's given broadly. And what Luke is suggesting to us is that the ministry of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost is being broadened in a way that had never been broadened before to empower ordinary people, regular Christians, for service in the kingdom of heaven. So to recap, it sounded like a tornado, it looked like fire, and it felt like power from on high. And when the people of Jerusalem heard all of this going on, they, um, they went out into the streets and they were wondering, what is this? What, what is, what can explain this? I, I hear Parthian being spoken, or you know, I hear perfect Elamitish, <laughs> however you put it. I hear Egyptian being spoken. The Jews of different nationalities begin to congregate in the streets around these special speakers, only to realize that the guys and the gals that were talking happened to be Galileans? Like, Galileans were hillbillies from the north. Galileans were, were hick people. They were considered to be hillbillies because of their strange and peculiar accent. How is it that Galileans are speaking languages from all around the Mediterranean world? And that, friends, that is Pentecost. It's taken from uh, Penta 50, right? The number 50. Because there's so much going on in this passage, I, I'm just going to throw a lot at you, and I, I hope that the most important parts, the, the parts that you need to hear and you need to retain, end up sticking. But uh, we talked about what it sounded like. We talked about what it looked like. We talked about what it felt like. What did Pe- Pentecost represent? Well, Pentecost in the Jewish calendar was an agricultural festival originally. It was 50 days after the Passover. It was a day when farmers would come and they would bring uh, for worship the, the very first of the crop, the first fruits, you know, the first sheaf of wheat from the crop. They would offer it to God both as a sign of gratitude that God has you know, brought the harvest, but also a prayer that the rest of the harvest would be gathered in. Now, Luke would assume that most of his readers would know that about Pentecost. You and I, I mean, we normally don't because we're not Jewish and we don't know our Old Testament generally all that well. But what you have to see is Pentecost coming on these 120 Christians. Like, clearly, the, the imagery is meant to suggest that these, these Christians are the crop of new life. 
from among the Jews all around the world. Now, as you go on and read in the book of Acts, you're going to discover something peculiar, and it's this, that they're not one, but there are four Pentecosts. There are like three more Pentecosts in the book to come. In chapter 8, as the gospel goes to the land of Samaria, the Spirit's poured out onto the Samaritans, non-Jewish people who the Jews hated. Um, that's a Pentecost. In chapter 10, when the gospel goes to the city of Caesarea, which is on the seacoast just northwest of Jerusalem, um, into the realms of Judea. And then in chapter 19, in the city of Ephesus, you'd say way out there on the outskirts of the Roman Empire, what had been promised that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In each of these instances, there is a Pentecost. And when the Spirit of God moves into a new region and moves on to a new people, when the Spirit falls, they end up speaking in tongues, in new languages that they didn't know. So what's going on? Well, a lot's going on. These four Pentecosts in the book of Acts, it's showing us that these are the first fruits, not just of the Jews, but of the nations. God is starting at that moment the harvest of the world. The harvest of the world has begun. And that's kind of like the first big idea. Second big idea, what does Pentecost represent? Pentecost was not only an agricultural festival in Judaism. It also commemorated a very important event. What event? Moses going up onto the top of Mount Sinai to receive the law. That the receiving of the law was supposed to have taken place on the 50th day after Pentecost. And you remember, there was a whole lot of fire in that moment too, wasn't there, right? The top of Mount Sinai is just burning with fire, with the presence of God. It was like this volcano had erupted on the mountain. And the people were terrified of it. The people were down in the valley, you know, dancing around a golden calf, worshiping a false god. And when Moses comes down from the mountain, he takes the Ten Commandments uh, that were written on stone and he breaks them because the people had broken the law. And then 3,000 of the people are judged and they die. So in Mount Sinai, the, f- the fire of God's presence terrifies them and makes them frightened to even come in into God's presence. But here we got another fire from God, and this fire is God's presence. And it has been dispersed on all of these different Christians, 120. And now the fire of God doesn't repel them, but it brings them in. And then we're going to see next week, uh, basically the Apostle Peter stands up and he delivers a sermon, the very first big Christian sermon on the day of Pentecost. He preaches it to to all of the Jews in the city of Jerusalem. Guess how many people end up getting saved from that sermon? 3,000. 3,000 died. 3,000 are saved. And so you have this reversal, uh, uh, if you will, of what was happening at Mount Sinai. Uh, No longer is the law going to be written on cold, hard stone tablets. But as the story goes on to show, it'll be written by the Spirit on on human hearts. And these ordinary Christians who are a bunch of nobodies are going to end up obeying the law of God by obeying it through the obedience of love, of loving neighbor and loving God himself. And so Pentecost marks this turning point from the old to the new. And and the old might say, Paul kind of puts it this way, the apostle Paul, that the law under the power of sin produces death. 
But in the new, the law under the power of the Spirit produces new life among the nations. I I love Pentecost because there's so much going on here biblically. Another idea that I came across is that these 120 Christians, you would say they've got fire above their heads. What do they kind of look like? They kind of look like lamps. Here it is. They are light bearers. They're shining. And it reminds us of the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, that let your light so shine before others that may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Like, in, in one sense, Pentecost is like taking these light bearers by the power of the Spirit out into the darkness of the world to, to shine the Father's light. You know, there are many more biblical connections we can make on this one event. I'll just highlight the one that we just read from Genesis chapter 11. Pentecost is a reversal of the Tower of Babel. So we didn't do chapter 10, but in chapter 10, you have this table of the nations, which then is followed in chapter 11, as all of the peoples of these nations gather together to build this tower, to to make a name for themselves, We think that the Tower of Babel was likely like an ancient Mesopotamian ziggurat, which would have been like a pagan temple. And they're stretching it high into the sky, this ultimate symbol of humanity's autonomy and rebellion against God. So what happens? God confuses their languages and sends them out into the world to to fill it. Well, here, Pentecost is a reversal of that. He, he's taking their languages and bringing them back together around the one beautiful wonder of God, because they're praising the works of God. And, you know, that's the gospel, that a few days earlier, the Son of God died on a cross, and then on the third day, he was risen back from the, um, from the dead. You know, at the time that Acts was being written, uh, everybody in the Mediterranean world would basically have spoken Greek, like the way that you would get around the empire is you would speak Greek. Now, you probably could speak one or two other languages, but you would never tra- travel around the empire and expect to hear Parthian being spoken or Median or Elamitish by anyone else except the members of your tribe, the members of your people. But here, here they hear it being spoken by somebody totally different. Verse 11, we hear them, them, Galileans declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. And the wonders of God had to include the wonders of what God had done through his son, Jesus Christ. So I think what's happening at Pentecost is the nations, which have been scattered into many different tongues because of sinfulness, are now being gathered together in this like wonderful reunification of humanity moment. And they're able to hear the wonders of God about Jesus in their own heart language, in their own heart language. And so like at this moment, what God is saying is, I, I, I dignify all cultures, all ethnicities. It's not just Jewish culture. It's not just rabbinic culture. It's, it's all cultures. And that's Pentecost. I want you to take a final note of how the Jews in the city of Jerusalem interpreted this event, verse 12 and 13. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? And some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. But literally, the Greek there says, they have had new wine. Like, yes, they, they are drunk, but they are drunk on new wine. 
And it's just as Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, verse 22. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins. And both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. And what he's saying is the spirit is the new wine. And the new wineskins are everybody from every tongue, tribe, and nation. So that's just a little bit of what's so cool, what's, what's going on, what's being represented at Pentecost. All right, number two, Pentecost today. <laughs> Here's where it gets a, a little more tricky. On April the 9th, the year 1906, in a little house in Los Angeles, during a prayer meeting, somebody in that prayer meeting um, started to speak in tongues. And then a few more people began to speak in tongues, and even more people, and word spread that like, oh my, Acts is happening in the City of Angels in L.A., uh, and crowds started to grow, and they moved to a larger venue at the Apostolic Faith Mission on Azusa Street, which is pictured right here. And um, for the next three years, they had the Azusa Street Revival, which ended up being the birthplace of what we call Pentecostalism. Now, you may not realize it, but one in every four Christians in the world today is Pentecostal. Um, what started at that moment like, spread like wildfire. And, you know, Pentecostalism, it emphasizes speaking in tongues. Often, um, that's not an earthly language. It's, it's like a spiritual language. I'm not a Pentecostal. I wish I was, because <laughs> I really admire the uh, zeal and the earnestness and the, just the level of commitment that our Pentecostal brothers and sisters have. And, and to be quite honest with you, I wish I could speak in tongues. I've tried. There have been moments in my life where I have asked for the gift of the Holy Spirit to be able to talk in a different language, and, and I even would try and start. And blah, you know, I won't, I won't um, demonstrate for you, but I would try my best to speak in tongues, but I was just babbling, um, and I never got to experience it. What do we do with Pentecostalism, um, especially, you know, being as we are like in a Presbyterian a tradition? Well, I think we admire our brothers and sisters. I think we also maybe have a few words of um, caution. So there was a man there at that prayer meeting. His name was A.G. Carr. A.G. Carr and his wife later decided to become missionaries to India. And they traveled to India fully expecting that the Holy Spirit would give them the gift of tongues, which they had already been expressing in, in the prayer meetings, but the gift of tongues to speak to Indians you know, in Hindi. Um, apparently, they didn't work. They weren't given the tongue. And so they got to India. They realized we can't communicate with these people. And so they went on to Hong Kong. And once they arrived in Hong Kong, they began studying Chinese because they were no longer kind of expecting that the Holy Spirit would, would zap them with a new tongue. Um, I think a proper caution is a not... Here, I think, is a, a good example of Pentecost in the past. So the pictured here is a very influential Christian theologian and bishop in the third century. His name is Irenaeus. Irenaeus was the disciple of a man by the name of Polycarp. And Polycarp was a student of the Apostle John. So Irenaeus was basically like two in line from the Apostle John. Irenaeus in church history ends up writing a hugely influential book 
called Against Heresies. And curiously enough, in the introduction to that book, he basically makes an apology statement. He apologizes to his readers that his Greek prose is not very good. And he says the reason is because I have been spending the last two decades of my life in southern France among the Gauls, that was the name of the people, learning the language of the Gauls and trying to bring the gospel to the Gauls. And so in doing so, I've kind of forgotten the right way to to write uh, in good Greek style. He brought the, the gospel to a nation in their own language, so much so that he kind of forgot his own language and how to do it really well. Of course, he was brilliant and he wrote just fine, but he was self-conscious in that way. And friends, that is Pentecost. That's totally Pentecost. You know, I have heard of stories of missionaries going into new places of the world, um, into Papua New Guinea and otherwise, and God has, at least in the stories that I've heard, given them a special ability to speak the language of a tribe or a people whom, you know, they had never learned that language before, at least temporarily. God gives them the ability to speak in tongues. But normally, he doesn't. Normally, when Christian missionaries go to new countries, they have to study the language in order to serve the people there. And so while I still believe that Pentecostal miracles with our tongues still happen today, I think a lot of Pentecost happens in the non-miraculous way, say, through the ministry of Wycliffe Wycliffe Bible translators. We had a couple of friends from college who uh, we were part of a a Christian ministry at the University of Arizona, and they ended up, he was brilliant, he ended up getting a PhD from UCLA, and then they worked on the field for, I think, 12 12 years, translating the Bible into an, an unreached language. And that... That's absolutely the work of Pentecost. I hope I don't sound too um, too self-aggrandizing to suggest maybe in some small way by us using Spanish or Portuguese or, I mean, I would love to use plenty of other languages in our worship service, that in some way when we do that, we, we are like living in the spirit of Pentecost. I gotta think they're just... There's so many more ways that we could embody the worldwide communion of the saints, but that's the one that we we have here uh, locally at our church. Finally, number three. So we talked about what did Pentecost represent, and I threw a bunch of ideas at you. And then we talked about Pentecost today and some of the maybe challenges with Pentecostalism. Um, How did Pentecost spread back in their day. Now we're going to see it spread through the book of Acts, but what about after the book of Acts? You know, historians will tell you that Christianity, it was like wildfire. I mean, the Roman Empire in the first century had an estimated population around 50 million. Of those 50 million, about 5 million were Jews, 10%. Judaism was a minority religion in uh, the Roman Empire. And then how many Christians were there coming out of Judaism on the day of Pentecost? 120. And yet, from a, you, you go from 120 to basically taking over the Roman Empire within a couple of centuries. Christianity was like statistically minuscule, and yet it ended up like wildfire sweeping across the countryside. And there was a historian and sociologist who died, I think he died in this last year, Rodney Stark. He wrote a book um, 
a few years back, looking at just sociologically, what was it that made Christianity spread like it did? And I didn't know many of these, but I thought that they were interesting for us to consider as we um, conclude. Number one, I don't know if you knew this, but Christianity drew converts mostly from people who were secular or nominal in their faith commitments, Um, mostly from the upper class with those who had grown dissatisfied with the good life, which felt lifeless in the Roman Empire. Number two, Christianity spread because the Christians cared for each other in times of sickness and disease. It gave much-needed dignity to human beings. They welcomed strangers. They provided community. They offered a refuge from a brutal world. You know, it was the Christians who stayed in the cities whenever there was a plague to care for their, their fellow citizens. You know. Number three, this wasn't normal in the ancient world. Women were honored in Christianity. Baby girls were not killed. Females of all ages were protected. You know, husbands, not just wives, were expected to, to be chaste. The early Christians outbirthed the non-Christians, um, and one of the reasons they did is because you know, they, they didn't have abortions. Number four, Christians were overrepresented in cities, which made them more influential than their numbers since the culture tends to flow from cities to the countryside. And that's how it happened. Number five, and I only have six of these, if you're wondering, <laughs> this is going too long. Christian martyrs galvanized and inspired the faith of the early Christians. Christianity required great sacrifice and brought a significant stigma, but this process of sacrifice and stigma scared off free riders and made Christianity a more vibrant faith. And then number six, membership in the church was expensive and a bargain at the same time. Like following Christ costs you something. It might cost you your life. But by becoming a Christian, you also gained physical support, relational attachments, and shared emotional satisfaction with other believers. You basically, you got a family. You got a real new family. And then, you know, Christianity promised rewards to its followers, the reward of being virtuous, and ultimately, the reward of eternal life. Um, When you look from the 30,000-foot view, that's kind of how it swept across the countryside over those first few centuries. And that's kind of the sociological side of it, Uh, That's the historical side of it. The the most important side, though, is the spiritual side. And that is simply Jesus is the one who gave the Spirit. The king started the fire. The king, you know, lit all of the brothers and sisters in the family on fire. And it ended up spread. And that's why I just love the statement that if you think about it this way, the Spirit is the coronation gift, the kingly gift of Jesus to his church. That is, once he ascended to heaven and was enthroned, he gave the gift of all gifts, the wind and the fire, for every nation. And it's a gift that, um, it's a gift that I think we can take for granted way, way too easily. Um, as we confessed earlier in the service of just times when we've ignored the Spirit, or when we have acted in our own strength and not in the Spirit's strength, or when we've quenched the Spirit, when when we knew the Spirit was speaking to us to do something or not do something, and we just said, shut up. And, um, you know, there have been many times like that. And I don't know about you, but I I just want to be more Pentecostal (laughs) in the very best 
sense of the word. In conclusion, tomorrow, as we celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Day, we remember the heroic work and sacrifice a Baptist minister did to try and address institutional racism in America. And I think that the only way um, Dr. King could have done it was, was through the Spirit, the Spirit's power. And that, that too, was a work of Pentecost, like his work to try and preserve and promote the dignity of every race in the United States of America is absolutely the kind of work that the Spirit desires. And so, friends, as we remember Jesus' last words, um, you remain where you are, and then my Spirit will come upon you, and he will empower you to be my witnesses. Um, I hope that that we will go out um, with this gift of all gifts to uh, rekindle um, the places that are that are dry and um, cold and dark, uh, to be advocates of justice and light, um, and to see to it that every tongue, tribe, and nation eventually is gathered in to the harvest of the kingdom. Amen. We're going to pray about that now. Let's let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that Pentecostal fire would burn here in the United States. And in the West in general, we live in a moment where secularism has taken all of the air, the spiritual, the air of spiritual interest out of the room so that new faith is hard to kindle in our city and existing faith is too often smothered. And indeed, Lord, um, just as I said a moment ago, like we feel it, we, w- we wish we were more on fire, <laughs> but for a variety of reasons, we're not. You know, some of us have felt deeply let down by the church and and bear significant wounds from the church. And, and some of us have had you know, hard events from our past that, uh, that make it difficult for us to be set aflame. I mean, all of, all of those things are like pouring jars of water on, onto our hearts, onto the wood. And we pray, God, that you would rekindle us. Um, the scourge of racism remains strong. Um, nothing stings as sharply as injustice. And so we pray for racial justice in our country, that you would empower the church to advocate and fight for brothers and sisters of every ethnicity, that you would teach us how to uh, continue that work of Pentecost here in, in the valley. And Lord, now as we come to the table, please feed us and strengthen us. Do it through the bread and through the wine. We come with empty hands, but we come knowing that you can make our hearts full. We come in the name of Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.